Good afternoon, and thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of international affairs and national security. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This afternoon, Dr. John Tierney will be joining the podcast to discuss the U.S. and world order. Dr. Tierney is a professor emeritus at the Institute of World Politics and teaches history of American foreign policy, history of international relations, peace strategy and conflict resolution, and U.S. foreign policy current and future challenges. Dr. Tierney is a former special assistant and foreign affairs officer for the U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. He formerly participated in various national security negotiations for the U.S. government. He was executive director of the Congressional Caucus on National Defense and the National Security Research Group for the U.S. House of Representatives. He is former chairman of the Politics Department at Catholic University and former professor of international relations at the University of Virginia and the John Hopkins University. He is the author of Chasing Ghosts and the Politics of Peace. Dr. Tierney, welcome and thank you for joining the IWP podcast today. Thank you. Very pleased to. In relation to our topic today, which is the U.S. and world order, could you start off by explaining to listeners what world order is and how it is often understood in the realm of international affairs? Okay, what is order? Order is a word like equality and justice in political vocabulary. What does it mean? Okay, let's go. Let's say you're in a courtroom and the judge says, Okay, order in the court. Order in the court. What does that mean? That means that everybody has to sit up, pay respect, stop any kind of dissension or conversation or anything that could be construed as interrupting the uh, proceedings. That is, they have to be orderly orderly. That is, they have to uh, avoid any kind of interruption that would uh, stop or alter the proceedings of the case. Well, to me, order is the most critical uh, ingredient in the political world. And I think it far surpasses the ones that we see so often in the streets and in the media, which is equality and justice. Because unlike those two, order can be achieved. I mean, it can be actually maintained. Most societies in the world, and there's 193 countries in the United Nations, every single one of them depends upon order for existence. Every damn one of them. They may not have justice. They may not have equality. They may not have freedom. Most do not but they all have order. Because if they didn't have order, they wouldn't exist. They'd be a a vacant lot to be taken over by somebody else who would then establish order. Order is the prerequisite for anything to be achieved. Uh, In the courtroom, you can't have a political society, you can't have any society, you can't have a family, you can't have a school, without order as the priority and then other things can flow you know but if you have disorder what is going to flow very little you know so all societies on earth depend upon order and that has been 
that is uh, metaphysically accurate. I mean, it, it goes without saying. Okay, now you contrast this with international society that is with the, the name of our school, world politics. And the conclusion reached is that throughout history, there has never, never been anything even remotely approaching order on a world scale. Have you ever heard of a world government? Yes, it's full of every book that's been written. Has there ever been one? No way. So world politics, as distinguished from domestic politics, is quite the opposite. In fact, it, those are too antagonistic. Domestic politics or political science depends upon order. International relations has never had it. Never. So what does it depend upon? What, what does it do to regulate itself? There's no, there's no president of the world. There's no dictator of the world. There's no general that controls the world. So what does what regulates it? How does it survive? Well, uh, it has to depend upon a substitute for order, and that substitute is basically the it it, it flows from the chief ingredient of world politics. Now, the chief ingredient of world politics, politically speaking, is called anarchy, A-N-A-R-C-H-Y, which in the mind's eye is quite the opposite of what the judge I just mentioned requires. How could he have anarchy in the court? Does he say, anarchy in the court, please, anarchy in the court? <laughs> no, of course not. But world politics is death is defined by anarchy, and no society, no, 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 no system exists that can that could could depend on anarchy, none at all. But world politics has anarchy. So what does it do to substitute? Given anarchy and the absence of Authority, absence of government, what does it do? Now, this is a a long answer, but it'll, it'll be the only long answer I give because I want to quote from a document that is considered a classic in international relations. It was written in 1907 by a British Foreign Service officer named Ear Crow, C-R-O-W-E, and it was is considered to be the classic definition of how international politics exists minus minus government and it was written to show the british for, he was a foreign service officer of the british what is the what is britain going to do about rising germany and the title of the of the memorandum and is quoted in and Henry Kissinger used it often in his books. I quote it in my classes all the time. What is Britain going to do, you know, to to offset the rise of Germany on the continent? What is it going to do? There's no order in the world, so what does Britain have to do? And the title of the 
memorandum is memorandum on the present state of England's relationships with England, with Britain, with, with uh, Germany and France. And I'm going to quote to you the conclusion, and that will answer the question of what countries do absent order. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry it's long, but I think it's required. This is the conclusion of this memorandum seven years before World War One, and the, the memorandum had great substantive uh, importance too, because it definitely put Britain on the path on behalf of France and against Germany, which was the actual origins of the First World War. Now, I'm going to conclude the memo with it's a long paragraph. This is the answer to the question. Ear Crow, history shows that the danger threatening the independence of this or that nation has generally arisen out of the momentary predominance of a neighboring state at once militarily powerful, economically efficient, and ambitious to extend its frontiers or spread its influence. Uh, guess who he had in mind? Excuse me. Um, the only check and the abuse of political predominance derived from such a position has always consisted in the opposition of an equally formidable rival <clears throat> or combination of several countries forming leagues of defense, like NATO, like the Warsaw Pact. I just use that as an example. He concludes, the equilibrium established by such a grouping of forces is technically <laughs> known as the balance of power, and it has become almost a historical truism to identify England's secular policy with the maintenance of this balance by throwing her weight now in this scale and now in that, but always on the side opposed to the political dictatorship of the strongest single state or group of states at any given time. End of the conclusion. That's the answer. The only way, given disorder and chaos in the global courtroom, is to establish alliances, leagues of defense, and the entire concept is called the balance of power. That's my long answer. I'm sorry it was so long. That was a great answer. Thank you. My next question for you is, in the sphere of world politics, it's common to hear references to polarity when talking about power and world order. Could you discuss the ways in which to examine world politics through polls and give examples of polarities we have seen throughout history? Indeed. I have an article on this and currently on our website, too. The article is entitled Polarity. There are three ways to look at polarity, P-O-L-A-R-I-T-Y, and they deal with the idea of poles, not uh, Warsaw poles or any other kinds of poles, but centers of power, P-O-L-E-S, poles, they, they, they group around uh, – they, actually, they are centers of powers, the place in the world – where power exists and is formidable and can define the world. There's only three. One, two, three. The first one is called unipolar, one power. If you want to uh, strip that of its 
polarity definition, use the word empire. Empire. That is the way in which most history has been governed. If you take a look at the uh, empires of the globe, you can name practically every place on earth that at one time or the other has been an empire. British, Russian, German, French, Belgian, Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese, Mongol, Islamic, Ottoman, Japanese. What did FDR say in his uh, speech after Pearl Harbor? We were attacked by Imperial Japan, other empires uh, like the Zulu or the Aztec or the Inca. Most of society has consisted of a unipolar organization called empire. Well, that's the, the great body of international history. And basically, if you take a look at the general perspective of world history, recorded history is 6,000 years old, 6,000 recorded history. And the nation state, as we know it today, France, England, the United States, Peru, Indonesia, only really began in the 17th century after the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, which makes the nation state system about 5% of world history. That 95% of, 95 of world history has consisted of empire. Hmm? Or unipolar, one pole. An empire is consisting of one government body. The second one, of course, is two. One, two. The second one is bipolar. Now, I, I grew up in a bipolar world. I grew up in a world that consisted of two major blocks. The North Atlantic block, organized in 1949 with the North Atlantic Treaty, that now consists of NATO of, of 30 countries. And the second half, the Warsaw Pact, based upon Moscow and the Soviet Union, which defined the actual polar structure of the of the Cold War. There were two, two major blocks that vied for the future of the world. And one of them dissolved or collapsed in 1991, and that was the Soviet Union. Okay. The third is three or more, and that is called multipolar, and that is associated with the European balance of power that existed after the Peace of Westphalia, and that consisted of anywhere from 12 to 20 states, all of them in Europe at one time or the other that vied with each other, as I just quoted in the memorandum through endless alliances and endless wars to achieve some form of of stability within an anarchistic world. That's multipolar. It can be three or it can be 30 or it could be 300, but it is more than one or two. And those three are the only two, excuse me, only three actually conceptual definitions of the way the world has been structured historically through unipolar, bipolar, or multipolar. And in the absence of a world government, this will continue. Could you explain to listeners what the reality of world order is today? Is there really any? 
the answer to the second question is no. There is no more world order uh, because the world still exists in a condition of anarchy. Now, there have been many efforts in the 20th century, especially two, to reverse this and create a form of order. You know the answer. Uh, the first one was in 1919 at the end of the First World War called the League of Nations. And the second was at the end of the Second World War called the United Nations. The League of Nations was a miserable failure. In fact, the U.S. Senate rejected it twice, and we never entered it. We, we, Woodrow Wilson was the originator of the League of Nations, which was an effort to create a form of order in the globe, and it was rejected by his own Senate. We won't go into detail as to why, but in my own opinion, it was largely his own fault, you know. Uh, to put it uh, in a uh, grotesque sense, he fell on his sword. He, he got he uh, he just made the wrong moves, and and we never entered the League of Nations, and it collapsed within a twenty-year period. Uh, the League, the United Nations, was much more has been in existence for seventy-five years. And it is very successful on a variety of economic and social fronts, but it is no substitute for uh, a world order. It has no control over the political structure of the globe, uh, especially even – I mean even in the Security Council, which consists of the, uh, of the great powers. So those two efforts came and went, and the United Nations, of course, is still in existence – but the world itself still exists in a condition of sustained and apparently permanent anarchy. And the countries of the globe still exist within blocks or independently of each other. And the only major threat to to the existence of the current situation is the possibility of China developing to such a degree that it has it is able to control the world. I think a possible solution that has about one in a hundred chances to occur. <laughs> in fact, nearly impossible. Even at the height of its expanse, which the greatest empire in the history of the world came from tiny Great Britain, situated as an island on the coast of Europe, that at its height in the 19th century probably controlled about 20% of the Earth's geography. The greatest empire in the history of the world controlled 20%. And of course, like all the other empires that preceded it, it also collapsed. And today there are no empires. So as far as I can see, unless something drastic happens in my or your lifetime, or in anybody's listening, the world political system will be will continue in a state of endless and seemingly permanent 
anarchy, with states vying with each other for regional hegemony or local authority, like over the South China Sea, you know, and and the world, and it is very depressing to me, uh, you know, I would much prefer to see an ordered globe, as, uh, and who wouldn't, for that matter, but it's it's going to con- it's going to exist just as much as it did in the classic book by Thucydides on the Greeks Greek Civil War called the Peloponnesian War, which was an account of polarity four hundred years before the birth of Christ. The situation has not changed essentially since then. It's the same to me. You know, there's a utopian bone in everybody's body, and I would like to see, frankly, a global concept that would be uh, be structured and 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 come alive and be achieved that would preserve order in the globe, based upon. Western principles of political philosophy, but there's no way the United States isn't going to lead it. That's for sure. You know, given the political situation of the last, you know, several years, particularly this year, and so there's absolutely no hope whatsoever. Yeah, sorry, I get, that's that kind of like goes into my next question. Um, in your opinion, has there been a demise in U.S. interest of world order? And if so, why do you think that is the case? The second part of the question is, is very difficult to answer. The first one is very easy. Of course, there has been absolutely no interest in the world since the Cold War ended in the part of the American political system or its politicians. In 1990, the year before the Soviet Union collapsed, Charles Krauthammer, the late great journalist, wrote a major article that was published first in the Washington Post called The Unipolar Moment. Moment. He said that with the end of the Cold War, which was on its way in 1991, the United States inherited the status of superpower and, indeed, the world was now experiencing, or shortly will, the existence of a unipolar system based in Washington, eight blocks from where I I sit, from the White House. Well, he called it a moment, and indeed, that's what it was. It existed for a few years, at best. What was the slogan that the governor of Arkansas used to capture the presidency in 1992? It's the economy, stupid. Well, what's that? What the hell's that got to do with world order? What was the name of President Clinton's? And I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just being objective. What was the name of his foreign policy? Assertive multilateralism. Figure that out. What was the name of the foreign policy that that W. Bush uh, pursued? Well, it basically was to create nation building in areas of the world, namely Iraq and other places that never experienced uh, 
national unity in uh, thousands of years. And we're still doing that. That's uh, about 19 years later. Uh, what was the name of President Obama's, the name he gave it himself, foreign policy? Do you remember the name? No. Yeah. The answer is no. Who would? Well, it was called Leading from Behind. Oh, really? That's What the hell does that mean? Uh, it certainly does not mean of anything favorable towards constructing a world order. <clears throat> what does MEGA mean? MEGA, mega. <clears throat> Make America great again. It's a very powerful slogan, but what's that got to do with constructing a world order? That was the vision of Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman. The answer is that since over the last three decades, since the end of the Cold War, the United States has, has had basically zero interest in constructing a world order. It doesn't take much to prove it. If you want proof, just listen to the speeches at the political conventions. Go back and play, replay the tapes of the Democratic primaries. Go back in 2016 and replay the tapes of the, uh, the primaries of both parties. About 1% was associated with world order. Maybe that's exaggerated. And what is going to be the uh, interest of a country that is basically that if you go to the White House again, eight blocks away from me right now, you can't even you can't even drive by there because there are barriers to the president's uh, mansion. So the answer to your question, the second part, why? I don't know. It's very difficult. This gets to the heart of how can a democracy control a globe? And how were empires able to control at least their their portions of the globe? None of them were democratic. The British, the British Empire was not democratic. The Mongol Empire was not democratic. Uh, it was anti-democratic, all of them. Because they were able to control their populations. Now, just look about you and read the newspapers and watch tonight TV and ask yourself the question. If a government or a society cannot control its political movements and its sociologies, its groups, its genders, its races, its languages, its religions, if it can't control them inside, what on earth are you going to think about it being able to control anybody outside? What are the odds? A hundred to one? No, about a thousand to one. I think the answer is systemic. How can a country that is almost by definition demanded to be, you know, absorbed, totally absorbed with its people within, how on earth is it going to control the people outside? We have 330 million people. The world has 7.2 billion. Any hopes 
that the United States is going to control and and construct a world order probably died with the second U.S. Senate rejection of the League of Nations exactly 100 years ago in 1920. It's, that is the most depressing part of my political life, to, to acknowledge that inability. I actually hate it. And I view our foreign policy, our political system, as not so much as how it can contribute to the words equality, justice, equilibrium, and everything inside, but how, as a professor of political of international relations, how is it going to construct an ordered and just world? And when the answer is about a thousand to one against, you get to wonder what the hell you're doing. <laughs> and it doesn't look too promising. That's my conclusion. I would love to listen to a brighter opt and more optimistic outlook, and I, I would really hope I'm wrong. In your uh, article, After America Who, you kind of touch on um, this question, but, you know, and we kind of touched on it a little bit too, but with China on the rise and kind of hungry to as assert itself as a dominant power, what do you kind of see as the future of world order? Well, uh, I don't see any single country, uh, even if it has a billion people, even coming close to being able to construct an order that would embrace the entire globe. That is historically very valid. You have to be almost go into some kind of political fantasy, some kind of a, a thing that has never really even come, come close to history to imagine a single country, even the one with the most population, being able to control the entire globe. And if you ever did entertain that notion positively, you would have to at least maintain that it would take centuries to accomplish. Now, this, this is an estimate. It could be wrong. Does China have – I'm not an expert on Chinese political philosophy by any means, but do they have any intention whatsoever of doing that? <laughs> Has any country ever had the intention of doing that historically? Now, they may control sometime in the future the South China Sea. They may control what we would call the Western Pacific, which Japan once wanted to control, which was why they, why why there was Pearl Harbor. They may want that, and it may come about. It, it would be quite natural, you know. We controlled the Caribbean Sea. We could, the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, 200 years ago, demanded that the United States control. The Western Hemisphere. Yes, the whole damn Western Hemisphere. In a country before 1823, just, just a few years ago, had its capital city burned by a British army. <laughs> it's going to control Brazil. All right. Uh, you know, the Monroe Doctrine was 
an attempt, an attempt of an American empire. The fact that it never really came about in terms of occupation is a testimony to the inability of even a great state like the United States, supreme in the Western Hemisphere, unable to forge total dominance of its of its neighborhood. So I don't think there's going to be any kind of global authority that stems from Beijing. Certainly not in our lifetime, and I'll include people who are 19, like our students uh, are 20. No, not in our lifetime. What I was going to hope for would be a concert. A concert. It's spelled C-O-N-C-E-R-T. Now, it's not a musical orchestra. It's a group of nations that exist to supervise the, the, the destiny of the globe from a standpoint of peace and war. Now, it's not fantasy. In 1815, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the Congress of Vienna that met in 1814 to 15 created something called the Concert of Europe. And the Concert of Europe kept great power peace for 100 years inside a, a, a Europe that had wars almost every year and was just getting out of the Napoleonic Wars, which lasted 25 years. So if you get a condominium of the world, you know, which was what the League of Nations really intended, the League of Nations, in theory, was a very revolutionary and very positive uh, concert, C-O-N-C-E-R-T. That would be the kind of a, a political structure associated with the great powers that would be the only meaningful and positive way I could see a global authority ever existing. I'm going to maintain my utopian credentials by hoping that that would come about. And if so, it would have to be led by the United States of America. But I can't see the United States of America anytime within the foreseeable future doing that. We came very close in 1919, even closer in 1947 under Harry Truman. But at the end of the Cold War, the American superpower unipolar moment, as Krauthammer said, was basically a moment in time. And we will not see it arise again in our lifetime. And that, to me, is the most depressing political fact on earth. Not that the United States has riots in Portland or Milwaukee or the White House is surrounded. No, that will come and go. But the fact that the United States has abandoned the quest that was begun, well, actually – it goes back to the founding fathers because they had visions themselves of a world order. Just take a look at their writings. The American mission was not based upon the Eastern seaboard. It was global. And that ultimate mission has eluded us. And now I think it is 
gone through our fingers permanently, as far as I'm concerned, permanently, because I'm not 19, unlike you and Lindsay. Right, well, I feel like we could talk about this topic for a while, but I think that's all the questions that I have for you today. Again, thank you for joining us on the Idaho podcast and discussing this very interesting topic of world order and, and what the future could hold in this regard. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu.